Well, good morning, and happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Um, I want to, you know, start by uh, saying thank you. Um, if you are here in this room this morning as a father, um, you are setting an example for your children. Um, you are leading your family well um, by setting a high priority on the fellowship uh, with, with other believers and the encouragement through worship and the study of the Word. So happy Father's Day to you. I want to tell you about a man, though, uh, by the name of uh, Jason L. Dunham, uh, probably better known as Corporal Dunham uh, to his uh, fellow Marines. Um, he was in the Marine Corps, a uh, man of great valor and courage. And on April 14th of 2004, Dunham's combat team was uh, conducting a reconnaissance mission in a town in Iraq when they heard a rocket-propelled grenade and some small arms fire erupt just a little over a mile west of their location. Corporal Dunham led his team toward the engagement to provide fire support for his battalion commander's convoy, which had been ambushed by a group of rebel soldiers. As the combat team made their advance, they quickly came under fire. Dunham ordered his team of Marines to dismount their vehicle and led a fire team via foot several blocks to the south of their ambush convoy. As the team rounded the local, cor a local corridor and came upon a group of seven vehicles, they did as they should, and they approached the vehicles, preparing to search them for any weapons. Upon their approach, an insurgent leaped out, and he tackled Corporal Dunham. Dunham wrestled the man, uh, this rebel, to the ground, but in the ensuing struggle, the, insur the insurgent released a grenade. Dunham immediately alerted his fellow Marines of the threat, and aware of the imminent danger, Jason L. Dunham threw himself on top of that grenade, helmet covering the grenade first, and then his body covering his helmet. He would withstand the worst of that explosion, shielding the blast from the fellow Marines around him, and ultimately giving his life with his selfless act of courage and bravery. For his undaunted courage, his fighting spirit, his unwavering devotion and boldness, he was given one of the highest medals of valor that is given out in our armed forces. It's called the Medal of Honor. You know that term valor or heroism, boldness, bravery, courage, whatever you want to call it, it takes commitment. It takes fearlessness. It takes this unwavering ability to go against what maybe our flesh is telling us to do. You know, courage is defined as just that. It says the ability to do something that frightens us, to have strength in the face of pain, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of grief, and even in the face of death. Now, I have no doubt that deep inside almost everyone in this room, there is the desire to have a similar purpose, to have an ability to be courageous like this. I think there's this natural desire for us to hold purpose like this in our life. Um, to be able to face the difficulties like we talked about last week with this type of boldness. I think we all have that desire, but I would believe that deep inside, for sure, every man's heart in this room is a desire to be courageous like this. Now, women often um, tear up. They think about the family that the, the, the Marine may have left behind. But when men hear stories like this, they puff their chest up. They naturally want to salute him, and they wonder... Could I do that? Billy Graham said it like this, and I think he said it well, when he said, courage is contagious, right? When a brave man takes a stand, the spine of others is often stiffened. In light of Father's Day, can I just pull over for a moment and share something with you men? If you want to live a life of boldness and courage, be the father that God created you to be. 
Don't just do enough. Don't expect your wife uh, to, to do as much as she can and, and then you just kind of fill in the blanks. Be actively involved in the life of your children. I don't necessarily agree with every political stance that our former president, uh, Barack Obama, had, but I do believe he had it right when he said this about fatherhood. He said, uh, any fool can have a child. That doesn't make you a father. It's the courage to raise the child that makes you a father. Men with daughters, will you teach your beautiful little girl what it means to be loved, what it looks like to be led? Teach her how a man should treat her and who that man should draw his strength from, that being God himself. Men with sons, would you teach your boys what it means to be a man that stands for what is right and true? Show him what it means to lead others to Christ and how you are called to follow in the footsteps of one who was humble and had great power and grace. Teach him how to be bold and courageous, yet tender and compassionate. Model for him the example of how you are to treat women and how to stand for Christ in the midst of any circumstance. You know, America is not just on some sort of slippery slope. I think we've already slipped. I think we've slipped into cowardliness. I think we've slipped into lies. I think we, we slipped into the easy way out of things. And the only way things are truly going to change is if we as men stand boldly for what Christ has called us to, to be courageous, not for valor's sake, not for recognition's sake, simply for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ and the purpose of Christ. You want to see America turn around? I think it starts with men building up a confidence in their children and teaching them and leaving a legacy of faith for them. But for men and women alike, for all of us, we all have the ability to follow Christ and we all have the responsibility. And can I say this? We have the privilege to take bold stands for Christ, to proclaim his victory and to help others come to accept that same victory in their lives through the courage of Christ himself. I like how the author and teacher Priscilla Schreier says it, and I think this really sums up our sermon series for the summer well. It says, you are not fighting for victory. You are fighting from victory. Victory is already yours. So this morning, I want to answer the question, what does courage look like? Well, first, we know this, that courage stands witness. See, what you do is either going to point people to or away from Christ. We're going to be looking this morning at the life of Stephen. Uh, Stephen's story is found in the book of Acts in chapter uh, 6 is where it starts. Uh, it's on page 887 in the Bibles in front of you. We're going to be looking through uh, chapter 6, 7, and a, port, a little small portion of 8. So why don't you turn over there with me uh, this morning. As we do, let me give you a little bit of a background for Stephen. Now, the, the church is, uh, is beginning to be established. Um, there's this leadership that is being had from the disciples, uh, Jesus' direct uh, disciples, and, and they're leading this place. Well, the church is getting big, and they're recognizing that some of the care is being neglected. Um, so they are going to appoint, they appoint seven uh, men to be these servant-style leaders, like boots-on-the-ground type guys, and Stephen is one of those men. In Acts 6, verse 5, it says this of Stephen. And it says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have no details to what Stephen did in regards to those servant-style uh, needs that were in the church. Because as soon as Luke uh, mentions Stephen, he goes directly to this legacy of Stephen. 
It's interesting enough that he does. Luke is a a detail guy. Now, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. That's what we we have in our Bibles, as well as the book of Acts. They're really a two-part work. The Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus' life. Um, The book of Acts is the story of the early church's life. And so here's Luke. Um, He's talking through all these things that are going on. He's sharing with us about the church. And then he talks about these seven men. And as soon as he says the name of Stephen, it's like, let me pull over for a second. Let me talk to you a little bit more about this man. Let me share with you this legacy of valor, very similar to that of, of Corporal Dunham. Stephen was a man of great courage. In Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, it says this, if you want to follow along with me. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogues of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the providence of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. You see, Stephen's life stood witness for Christ and to Christ and the power that was working in him and the people of Christ. Charlie worked as a crossing guard. Um, Back in the days uh, before, there was automatic uh, motorized arms that would cross so that we would not go across the train tracks when the train was there. Well, Charlie was the guy that would have sat on duty, and when a train would have come, especially in the evening, he would have stood up, he would have gotten his uh, lit lantern, and he would have waved that lantern up and down, up and down, so that the cars coming forward towards the train tracks would have known that they needed to stop and wait for the train to pass. One evening, Charlie was on duty, and uh, he fell asleep while he was on duty. He awoke to a train coming down the tracks, and he looked off in the distance, and sure enough, there was a car coming that direction as well. So he hurriedly grabbed his things, and he went out, and he started waving that lantern up and down, up and down, but to no avail. The car pulled right on the tracks, and the train hit them and killed a whole family that evening. Now, there was an investigation, and there were hearings, and Charlie was questioned and eventually cleared, but following the trial, Charlie became very hopeless and distant. His friends tried to encourage him to get on with life. One even said, what's wrong, Charlie? You were cleared and you you told the truth, so, so what's troubling you? Charlie said, you're right. I answered every question truthfully, but there was one question they never asked. They never asked me if the light was on in the lantern. It wasn't. You know, I wonder, I wonder if that could describe us. Because I think that we live in this fast-paced society, right? Go, 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 do this, do that, one thing to the next. I don't have to explain this because all of you are shaking your heads like, yeah, we get it, right? Um, We recognize that we live in a very busy society, and I think sometimes faith just gets shuffled in there, and we are going through our lives, and we're saying, yes, we believe these things, and we're doing some things that would represent that. We're going to a small group, or we're involved in a Bible fellowship, or we're we're in vacation Bible school, we're hurry here, hurry there, we got to make sure we get to that event and this event. And before we know it, um, we're using excuses like, well, I don't have time to talk to the neighbor because I've got to get to the next thing. Or I don't have time to share with that person that might be open to the gospel at work because, well, I've got to get to that accountability group. So I got to pick up my hours right now. It's like we're waving our lantern all along without the light being lit. And you do recognize this, right? There are people that only you are going to touch that are in your sphere of influence, people that you have a connection with that I won't or the person beside you may never ever have a connection to, and you are going to have the ability to influence them. 
And right now, they may be headed down a path of eternal destruction, like that car headed towards the railroad track. And you're trying, doing good things beside them, but you're not sharing with them the light, the hope that you have. I think we learn a lot from Stephen's life. Um, he was a, a clearly effective. Um, I mean, who wouldn't want to be known as somebody that had great faith and courage like he is? What about your life? I mean, if somebody was to write your epitaph, if somebody was to write a little bit of your obituary, wouldn't you want them to say that you were a man or a woman full of God's grace and power? I would love for that to be said of, of me, my legacy that would be left behind. They, they would say, man, his life of of recognizing God's victory pointed me to something else, that he lived courageously for Christ. You see, courage is not just that, but courage is confident in the truth. Right? You can't be bold if you don't know what you believe. You know that? As Acts chapter 7 opens, we find Stephen before the Sanhedrin. Okay, this is a council of Jewish leaders. So these are like all these religious elite. They're, they're there. They have wrongfully brought Stephen in front of them. Actually, they, they set him up. This was a, a typical thing. When they felt threat, they would set people up. They tried to do it to Jesus. They were always trying to catch Jesus in his words. Um, he was able to oftentimes uh, outwit them in such a way that he was able to, to spend the appropriate time on earth that he needed. And he knew that. But here's Stephen. Now they've caught him. They set him up. They, they have these people here that are going to um, speak uh, against him. And Stephen is now sharing with them. And chapter 7, pretty much the whole chapter, verses 1 through 53, are going to show Stephen trying to make this case for the Messiah, for Jesus. And he goes into this litany of the history of the ancestors of the Jewish faith and the, the people of Israel. And he basically says, you guys have done this before, right? He says, the, the, you have done the same thing that our ancestors have done. They have recognized a righteous person and they've denied the righteous person. So here's the deal. Stephen could not have been courageous if he didn't know what he believed. He couldn't have laid out this, this lesson, this truth for them if he didn't know what he believed. You see, when we're courageous without knowledge, I think it's oftentimes reckless, okay? So now some of you in this room are like, okay, well, I'm new to the faith, so that means I don't have to stand up for what I believe because I don't know exactly. I'm still working some of this stuff out. Um, I, and so in a sense, you, you would use this as some sort of cop-out or excuse to, to not do something. But don't, don't use it as that. Use it instead as motivation to learn what you do believe, to study God's word more diligently. You know, as a young man, as a young preacher, I oftentimes get asked, do I get nervous to preach? And I can tell you this, I would be shaking in my boots, um, dripping sweat up here if I hadn't prepared, if I hadn't studied properly, right? Um, I, on an average week when I uh, prepare a message, I can spend upwards of about 25 hours preparing a sermon. Uh, and that's not just because I'm young. Some people are like, oh, that's because you're young. You'll get better at it. You know, when you're in your 60s, you'll be able to do it in 30 minutes. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, I know ministers, um, Ken, who will be with us uh, next week, uh, uh, some others that are going to be with us this, uh, this summer, uh, folks that I've talked to or read books from, and they'll tell you that still in 40, 50 years of ministry, it'll still take them 20 plus hours to prepare a sermon. And that's good because they're studying it. And when you studied it and you prepared yourself well, God is faithful to that, and he'll help you have a boldness and a confidence. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it actually says it just like this. And this isn't written to preachers. This is written to all of us. It says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as the Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So what does this mean for you? 
It means don't neglect growing. Don't neglect the learning or becoming more aware of God's presence through knowledge. Truth be told, I feel like the more I study this, the more I have to learn. Um, And that's usually how it works, right? Um, God's word is said to be alive and active. We learn that in the scripture, and I think that's how it is. Even as I studied this week, and I looked at the life of Stephen, I've studied Stephen before, I've preached sermons on Stephen, and there was new stuff that God was revealing to me through his word, and that's that's how the the word of God works. So you're never going to have everything figured out and all the details ironed out, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't work to study. So that may be a verse a day more. That may mean right now you've got the the Bible app on your phone and you've got that verse that comes to you. Well, why don't you click on that and read the chapter that's around that verse so you can get a little more of the context. Maybe that means uh, taking on a new book that'll challenge you in a new way. Maybe that uh, means getting connected with a Bible fellowship class. We've got a new class that's going to be starting next week during this hour. We're going to be studying the, uh, the book of First and Second Peter, um, which is a great study um, to pick up if you've got lots of questions about the faith. Whatever that means, it doesn't mean sit still, right? We've got to take an active approach to learning more because when we do, God is faithful to that. Actually, Jesus himself promised us this uh, in Luke chapter 12. It says, when they drag you into their meeting places or into the police courts and before judges. Now, I don't know if we're going to be right in our life. I don't know. Maybe at the end, of, I, I sometimes will tell people, maybe by the end of my, my age, uh, that here in America, we might face this. We're not facing this right now. I haven't been dragged into the police courts or before judges just yet. But I have had people question me about why I believe what I believe. And it says, don't worry about defending yourselves. What you'll say or how you'll say it, the right words will be there. The Holy Spirit will give you the right words when the time comes. Now, I think that's a promise to those who prepare well. When you are prepared to give an answer for your faith, sometimes there are questions that people ask that you're just not sure about. And you need some time to think about. And that's all right. You might... Ask, hey, give me, give me some time to study that out and study God's word out for you, and I'll come back with an answer. Or it may just mean that the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to help him to have the right words to speak to this person. Stephen's declaration of truth is clear, though. Stephen doesn't do it arrogantly, but he also doesn't compromise truth in the midst. Because as he comes to the end of this, uh, this saying, courage uh, was seen in how he called sin, sin, right? Because courage calls sin, sin. Uh, communicating God's truth is the most loving thing that we can do, right? Now, we live in a society that's full of tolerance, right? That's what, what's, what's told of us. Uh, sharing God's truth is then misinterpreted as bigotry, or political correctness is more important than the reality. Now, here's the deal. I, I know that this topic can oftentimes be misinterpreted, that there are plenty of scriptures. There are plenty of scriptures. We just read one in First Peter um, 3 that talked about doing it with gentleness and respect. There's scripture about living at peace with others as far as it depends on you. There's scripture about sharing truth and love. But this morning, I think we need to be reminded that we cannot compromise truth in order to do these things. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51 through 53, Stephen has just given this quick historical background, and now he calls it what it is, and it starts in verse 51 saying, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You've always resisted the Holy Spirit. Was there every... Sorry, let's start that over. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. 
you have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. That term stiff-necked people was a term that would have uh, resonated with those men there that day. Um, They would have recalled the term. It was the same term that was used um, when uh, the Israelites had been delivered from Egypt. um, And here they are wandering in the desert. And they're like, hey, can Aaron, we, Aaron is Moses' brother. They're like, Aaron, will you please make us these idols? We want to worship these false idols. They want to collect their deliverance on something else. And they're called a stiff-necked people. The same is being said of these people here. You stiff-necked people. Now, we could spend hours on this topic. I think some of you have a person in your mind. You're like, yeah, they're a stiff-necked person, right? They're a little stubborn. And I'm not condoning the idea of standing on a street corner with a sign that says, go to hell or you're going to burn in hell. I'm not promoting the idea of hate talk or treating people without dignity or respect. However, I believe that as Christians in America, we have softened the sharing of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is this, that while we were sinners, that we have been saved from our sins. But in order, in order to help somebody else come to recognize that they were saved from their sins, you first have to help them recognize that they are a sinner, right? And as I study the New Testament, as I look at these leaders, these men that uh, share these truths with us that we have now in the form of our Bible, guys like Luke and Paul and Peter and Timothy and Titus, these were not guys that shrunk into the background and had the view of, well, we'll just act and do good things, and maybe someday somebody will ask me about Jesus. They were people that were boldly proclaiming the truth and calling sin, sin. You know, there's a, an illustration that oftentimes preachers use. I've used it myself before. Uh, it's supposedly a, a saying that uh, this uh, uh, leader in uh, the early, um, I think like 1400s, his name was St. Francis, um, they say that he said, preach, wor- uh, preach the word, use words if necessary, was the supposed quote of his. Now, as I did some study this week, um, I found that this was really just internet legend, right? Believe this. You can't believe everything you read on the internet these days, okay? Everybody got that? Um, and, and this was just a, a had become like this cop-out for people to live speechless type faith. It's not the truth. Francis was a little guy, it's said, a small guy, um, and he was a fiery little preacher, is what uh, I studied and as I found of his life. He said he would oftentimes preach in five villages a day. He would go from town to town, village to village. He would stand wherever he could on a big tall, something tall to make him look taller, uh, whether it was a bell of hay or a box, or if he was out in the forest, he would stand on an old tree stump that had been cut off, and he would just scream at the top of his lungs until somebody heard him, and that they would come um, to hear, and he would be able to share with them both the truth of Christ and the grace of Christ, right? We, we need to be full of grace, right? But we also need to be full of truth. We need both of those things. Because that's the final thing I think we learned from Stephen's life, is that courage is witnessed by someone. You know, Jesus is actively involved in the life of bravery, Stephen's life ended tragically. We hear this conclusion of his life in verse 54 um, through 60. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth. I find that an interesting statement, gnashed their teeth. That term is, uh, is often used um, in regards to Hades or hell uh, where there'll be gnashing of teeth. And it's, it's one of the only other times I've seen it in scripture. Uh, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Stoning was an evil way to die. An evil way. It wasn't like, hey, a bunch of little kids are throwing pebbles at you. That's not what was going on here. Actually, um, as we study the records, the idea of stoning was that they would oftentimes find a pit um, or somehow or another put themselves above this person. They would lay them out on their, their hind uh, quarters. They would lay them back on their back, and then they would drop stones, large stones, across this thing on top of them. Um, the, the first witness was going to try to drop a stone right on the heart. If he missed and it landed on one side, then they would dro- the next witness would drop a stone. And they would drop stone after stone after stone until the person suffocated and died, if they hadn't already died from some sort of puncture wound or, or bleeding out. It was a horrid, torturous way to die, quite like crucifixion. Very similar to Jesus' death. And you hear some similar um, uh, terms that are used. You know, there he is at his end of his life, and Stephen's using the same language that Jesus used. Forgive them, for they do, they do not know what they are doing. But what I think is the most important part is found in verse 55, where it speaks of Jesus standing at the right hand. Okay? So, so here's a little bit of a, uh, a history behind this. This is one of the only times we hear about Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Um, the right hand symbolizes authority, right? It symbolizes a place of honor. Um, and oftentimes the resurrected Lord was seen as one that sat at the right hand of God, um, waiting for the day that he would return to us. But here we see him standing. Now, scholars have argued about why he was standing. Some would say that Jesus was standing because he was about to welcome Stephen into the presence of God. I like to, like to think about it like that. I hope that someday when I, when I come before God, that it's Jesus uh, standing there as, and he, I get to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Some say that he was getting ready to intercede for Jesus. Okay, so the idea of intercession is that God is still a just God. He's still a God of wrath. There's still a penalty to be paid for our sin. Jesus paid the penalty, so he becomes our mediator. He becomes our interpreter. Um, And so when we come before God, Jesus stands before us, and he says to the Lord, he's trusted me, he's been faithful to me, and he has taken on the promise of salvation that I give. And God says, okay, well done, good and faithful servant. So maybe he was interceding. For some, they say that Jesus was standing out of pure terror and horror at the situation that he, he saw below him. Here he is. This is the first man that had given his life for the faith. And he's looking down and he's thinking, this is not what I wanted for my people. Now, we, we can't be certain of why Christ stood, but we can be certain of this, that Jesus is actively watching. He's involved and he is responding to those courageous acts of faith. Now, Stephen died that day, but the courage that he has lived on Some wonder, how did Luke know all about this? I mean, how did he know all the things that he said to him in front of all those those leaders? How how did Luke have all these details about this this situation? Well, Luke um, was a close companion of a man by the name of Paul. 
Um, you probably uh, caught it, uh, but as we read through that passage, it talked about a man by the name of Saul there, a young man. Um, we, we would assume that Saul at that time was probably 24, 25 years of age. Um, in chapter 8, uh, verse 1, it, uh, it goes on to say this, and Saul uh, approved of their killing of this man. And so here's this young Jewish leader, uh, and they set their, their, the witnesses sat their coats at him. So basically they're like, we don't want to get our, our, our nice clothes dirty with the blood of this guy. We're setting our coats there, um, and we're going to go kill him. And, and Saul sat there and approved of it. Well, Saul would become Paul, right, on this road to Damascus experience. You can read that in the book of Acts as well if you'd like to learn a little bit more about the life of Saul becoming Paul and this name change and why that happened But Paul was a courageous man. And I have no doubt that when Paul faced the circumstances that he faced, that he would have drawn on the experience in the life of Stephen, the legacy that Stephen had left for him, which is important to think about, right? Because each of you in this room, whether you're young or old, you are leaving some sort of legacy behind. You will leave something, something, some statement about you, not with people some hundreds and uh, thousands of years from now, but with the people right now, the people that you're interacting with, your children, your spouses, um, your coworkers. And I wonder, how, what would people say about us that would then allow them to be a faithful generation that would then allow them to pour out again to another person? We, we, we have to recognize that. We're leaving some sort of, of legacy. And Stephen, why he died, his legacy lived on through the life of Paul. And then here's Paul, and Paul's about ready to die. And now Paul is writing to this young guy named Timothy. And Timothy's a young man, probably similar age to when Paul was the one standing there um, condemning this guy and allowing him to be stoned. And now Paul is saying, Timothy, this is what you need to do to be strong and courageous. And he says this in verse 7 of chapter 1 of the book of 2 Timothy. He says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but it gives us power, it gives us love, and it gives us self-discipline. You know, there's a legend that says that when Jesus returned from heaven following his death on the cross and resurrection from the tomb, that the angels gathered around him in amazement. They gazed at his wounds uh, in his hands and his feet, and they shuddered to recall the suffering that he had went through. And then the angel Gabriel spoke up and said, Master, he said, you suffered terribly down there. Do they know and appreciate the extent of your, your sacrifice? No, said Jesus, not yet. Right now, only a handful of people know about it. Then, then what have you done to let everyone else know, asked Gabriel. Well, I've asked Peter and James and John and a few others to spread the good news. They're going to tell others that are going to tell others until the message spreads to the end of the earth. But Gabriel, knowing the nature of the human beings, asked, well, what's your plan B, Jesus? I have no plan B, replied Christ. There is no alternative strategy. I'm counting on them. And I think that's the same that is true for us today. He's counting on you and me. You know, I think we are called to be a generation of Stevens, to be known as a people full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't shrink back. It doesn't run from the face of opposition. It's not timid. The Spirit is courageous. It boldly witnesses the truth. It knows what it believes, and it proclaims that truth as truth. And all along, Christ stands witness to that. And others around us will see our legacy lived on. You know, Joshua was a man that took up a mantle of leadership from, from Moses. All right, Moses was this guy that did some pretty awesome things for God. And I can't imagine being the guy that gets to follow Moses. 
Here's Joshua, and the book of Joshua in chapter one, and uh, there's this just laying out of uh, this theme of, of this this truth that Joshua needed for his life. It's actually said four times. This uh, this terminology is said in that one chapter. Verse uh, verse nine sums it up well, and I think it's a, a charge to us this morning. It says, "Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Do not be discouraged." For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You know, that's the promise that is held out for you this morning. To be strong and to be courageous. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go.